0: Hiya, friends, old and new. Welcome to another episode of Le Vital Core Salon. I'm Cara, your host and salonier. And that means each episode, I'm tasked with introducing you to a modern woman leaving her unique stain on the world without letting bullshit or burnout stop her. Today's guest, Miranda Mims, is no exception. When I was at South by Southwest earlier this year, I had the great fortune of meeting Miranda after attending a roundtable facilitated by Minda Hearts, And for those of you who are newer to the podcast, I highly encourage you to check out the conversation that I had with Minda Hearts back in episode 16. It's an oldie, but it's a goodie. After the roundtable discussion was over, I took a chance in organizing an impromptu dinner at the Elizabeth Street Cafe, which is one of my favorite restaurants in all of Austin. Texas. And Miranda said yes to joining and proceeded to blow my mind. And I think I asked her a million questions about what it's like to be an archivist and what archivists do and decided that she would probably be a really great podcast guest because it's something I knew so little about and find so fascinating. And hopefully all of you will find this conversation fascinating as well. This conversation bounces in a bunch of different directions, but at its core, it's about knowing when to hold them and knowing when to fold them. This can relate to physical items, a mindset, or even the mental clutter that we carry around as humans. Let me get you a little more up to speed on Miranda's professional cred. Miranda is the Special Collections Archivist for Discovery and Access at the University of Rochester. She has an appreciable background in Special Collections, working to develop and preserve primary materials that highlight the cultural, social, and political history of people of African descent. Over the past decade, Miranda has worked in the Manuscripts, Archives, and Rare Books Division at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, which is part of the New York Public Library. She's also worked in the African and Middle Eastern Division at the Library of Congress and the Smithsonian's National Museum of African Art, as well as several departments in the archives at Catholic University. She currently serves as the chair of the security section of the Society of American Archivists and is the former director of the Advocacy Committee of the Archivist Roundtable of Metropolitan New York. One other thing I want you to know about Miranda is that she's an introvert who's often more comfortable hanging out with inanimate objects in the archives. I just really want to give her a huge personal shout-out for saying yes to coming to Levital Vital Core Salon and letting me ask her a bonkers number of questions about what she does and who she is, And really having the courage to do that. It's such an honor to have this conversation with Miranda. For those of you who may have noticed that I get a little, well, one time at Bandcamp about South by Southwest, I just want to say South by Southwest is usually an amazing personal experience for me. It's a gift to be able to cross paths with women outside of the health and wellness and coaching space. And connect with women who work in the worlds of interactive and music and film and cities. And I'm sure there's even some other subsets of industries that I'm, I'm not even scratching the surface on. If you haven't had a chance to ever check it out, I highly encourage you to head on over to sxsw.com. And one warning before you dive into this conversation between Miranda and I. When we recorded this, I had recently returned from a long weekend with some of my oldest and dearest girlfriends from Massachusetts. That means my latent, mass-hole accent got a little bit of a recharge and is in full effect in this episode. Voila. Here's my conversation with Miranda. Miranda. Hey, Miranda, welcome to Le Vital Core Salon. Hey, Kara, how are you? I'm great. I'm great. It's been a few months since South by Southwest.
1: I know, a lot has happened in those few months. <laughs> it feels like it's been a lot longer, but yes,
0: it's been a couple of months. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm stoked. I'm stoked. And I'm so glad you said yes, because I know when we met at dinner, I I feel like Craig was almost ready to pinch me. And say enough questions. I'm super stoked to have you all to myself now. (laughs)
1: Yes. Yes. This is very exciting.
0: So I know I gave the listeners a little bit of information from your bio before this interview. You are an archivist. And this was something when we met, I had no idea that that was even a job that someone did. Mm Mm-hmm. So, I mean, literally, I don't know who was preserving all of these objects and artifacts and parts of history that people call on, but I had no idea that there was a job that did this. And so for the sake of educating me and us taking everyone listening along with us for the ride, what does an archivist do or what's a day in the life look like?
1: I think that um, your response, actually, uh, when we met a few months ago uh, to my career is typically the response I get, Um, and I think my accent is also something that throws people, so when someone asks me what I do, I say I'm an archivist, and they look at me for a moment, and they say, oh, you're an activist. Oh, No, no, no. I'm an archivist, um, and then still, you know, they register, okay, yes, you work for an, you work in an archive, but then still I get a blank look, like I have no idea what that is, and so I think that... <laughs> like um, a cave
0: that you go to, <laughs> or like Fort Knox, yes,
1: like... Yes, I think it is very ambiguous for a lot of people. Um, I think there is a rare, who well, I would say like a very small percentage of the population who are very... You know, have a strong knowledge of archives, and those are people who do a lot of research in archives or work in archives. But I think for the most part, um, it's a very, very small profession. Um, And although we do represent in the thousands um, nationwide, I think, you know, still population-wise, there's not many of us out there. So it's this really interesting and unique field What's even more interesting about it is that it's very, very diverse. So I would say that most archivists, we have a lot of things in common. Our days look very similar in a lot of respects. So for you and for any other listener who can't picture what an archive looks like, for the most part, you can think of just going into a huge space. Well, sometimes small spaces. Let's bury the space. Um, But what you'll always find is just tons and tons of stuff. And this could be paper, photographs, artifacts. One institution that I worked for, um, we had Bibles, Bible verses written in stone. You know, these things were thousands of years old. Um, You just have just so, so much stuff that you are responsible for. Um, And so for most archivists, that is what we do on a day-to-day basis. We collect Cultural material things, items, um, and now that's becoming digital as we approach this new age. We not only collect, but we store and preserve so that we can give access to researchers today, to generations in the future. I mean, the, our biggest responsibility is to make sure that everything in our care, everything in our holding, will be around hundreds of years from now so people can understand who we are today.
0: Oh my god, my head is exploding. So what I'm picturing is, I don't know if you're a Harry Potter fan, or have you seen any of the movies by any chance? Yes, yeah. So what I'm picturing is, I think in like the later Harry Potter films, probably the last two or three, I forget exactly which one. I'm picturing like the room in the, what is it, the Ministry of Magic, where it's just Mm -hmm. giant mind-boggling stacks with kind of boxes you can pull out and everything's all labeled.
1: So that, yes. real- <laughs>
0: so that really is That's the reality. is the ideal world
1: when it's labeled. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, re- the reality can be different, you know. I mean, in some repositories, things are labeled. In others, not so much. I mean, you have to also take into consideration that most institutions only have one to two, maybe three archivists, and then just tons and tons and tons of stuff. Um, so actually organizing and labeling and cataloging, um, and producing guides and digitizing all of that stuff, um, is like a monumental feat. But yes, I mean, in, in an ideal world, you could pull down a box and it'll be completely organized and labeled.
0: Okay. So what kind of institutions are we talking about? Are these public, private, a mix of both Oh, it can be any. It can be any. It can be a church.
1: Um, Church has archives. It can be a hospital, um, Chase Bank. You know, banks have archives. Um, It could be a university, research center. Most museums have archives, um, right? So, like, the things that are actually uh, displayed in the museum is only a percentage, a small percentage of what's actually in the holding, Um, so most institutions have archives, um, your podcasts, all of the, the raw data that you have, things that you haven't put out there, those are your archives. So any, just about families, our houses have archives.
0: There's archives everywhere. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) It's so wild for me to like think about and try to conceptualize like what that actually means. I guess you had years to do this in your education, right? (laughs) Like to process that very thought.
1: Right. And, you know, I mean, so like not every, um, you know, not every set of material um, or a set of journals that you may have or family photo albums, they end up in an institution that then gets studied And hundreds of years later, you can still find this family photo album that, you know, that that's when archivists who are sort of trained um, in a sense, we then think about the selection process, like what gets preserved? Because obviously in an institution where you might want to give your materials because they they have the um, ability to actually preserve these materials and make them accessible. Can't hold everything, right? There's just too much being created in our world today, uh, and there's just not that capacity out there realistically. And so that's when you know you're sort of trained in the selection process of what gets preserved and what doesn't. And a lot of that is dictated research trends of that time period and what you're sort of predicting people will find interest in in the future.
0: That's a really interesting point because you are literally preserving these things from the past, and even probably sometimes currently, right?
1: Oh, yes, absolutely.
0: And then what I'm hearing you say is, then you're having to try to predict, like, which of these things are important. I know I'm about to ask you a monumentally huge question. But how does one do that? Like, where, where do you get inputs to make that decision? And is that a decision you make yourself? Or is it kind of you sit down with a committee of sorts and and try to, I don't know, buff up the crystal ball.
1: Yeah, you know, it it, it depends on the repository. If you're in a one man shop or one woman shop, um, you're making a lot of those decisions in isolation. You may be able to talk to your constituents. You might be able to get some insight from the people who are using um, your collections. You know, other stakeholders in the community, um, especially if you're representing like a small community archive, um, they'll have some input on what you should keep and what you shouldn't keep. Um, But you can sort of see, too, I mean, we are at the point now where we can sort of tell what things should be preserved versus what shouldn't be preserved. But, you know, I mean, that's not always in stone either. You know, for the most part, a lot of us um, in archives, we may get a collection from somebody, um, say they're a writer. And, um, you get all of their manuscripts and their notes and letters that they've written to lovers, um, journals, you get all that. And then you also get all their receipts and their bank statements. (laughs) And, (laughs) and so you might think, well, you know, we only have so much space. Um, we don't need five boxes of receipts. Maybe we'll just keep the tax returns so people can at least see what this writer's income was during the 1920s, which is important. And so you might get rid of the receipts. We call it deaccessioning. And for the most part, that seems like a legitimate way to select, right, Um, based on somebody's journals are probably more important than the receipts. But I think it was Langston Hughes where a researcher went back and looked at all of his receipts. Was it Langston? It might not have been Langston, I might have this confused, but they were able to figure out uh, an affair this person, this really important person was having based on these receipts. So, right. And so like you are thinking in terms of making the best possible choices with the information and with the knowledge you have, um, and then in the constraints that you're working with. Um, but there's always somebody out there who could use a piece of information, to unravel, like this, in you know, this an amazing mystery, and so it's a it's a really tricky process. Um, but for the one thing, you know, a lot of institutions. What makes every institution somewhat unique is that we do not continuously collect what another institution has. So if one institution has something, not um, you know, even even if they're in the same collecting area. Um, There shouldn't be a lot of duplication of efforts. It's just not necessary. And so that's one way to sort of focus in on what your collection development strategy should be.
0: So if you knew, for example, take this Langston Hughes or insert whoever X, right? Yes. (laughs) Um, If we take that example, then what I'm hearing is if you knew say he banked with Chase Bank, right? You had all these bank records from Chase Bank, which Mm -hmm. we are totally making up stuff that sounds ridiculous, even as I'm saying it. Um, But if you knew, okay, he banked with Chase Bank and we have all these bank statements or whatnot. If you knew that there was an archive at Chase Bank that kept every single bank statement from 1900 on, you would say, okay, I could pitch this because we know this is covered over there. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. So how much of your day is sort of wading through papers and materials and items? And how much of your day is having to track down, is somebody else in the universe collecting this right now?
1: Well, you know what? I would say that now in my current position at the University of Rochester, my day of actually dealing with the archives physically is... um, that percentage is relatively low from when I was at the Schaumburg Center for Research in Black Culture, which, was, uh, which is a research division of the New York Public Library. And I did more hands-on what I would call, or what we call archival processing. And so my day-to-day now is to really... Think about developing collections, um, working with donors, working with the community, um, working with individuals and organizations to sort of start developing collections and growing certain strengths that are not really represented at the moment um, in the university's archive. And so although I do manage the physical collections, I sort of facilitate that process. So I'm not as directly involved with the collection material so i do more of a higher level
0: okay got it got it Mm -hmm. and it sounds like you're coming in to an archive that was already in existence and you're just having to kind of maintain it as opposed from starting from scratch oh yes absolutely yeah got it okay this makes more sense
1: Oh, yes. Um, And I haven't had the opportunity, actually, to work from scratch. And actually, that's one of the things that I'm guessing you introduced in my intro with the Nomadic Archivist Project.
0: Yes. So, yes, yes, please talk about that.
1: (laughs) So, I mean, that is one of the things that um, myself and my co-founder, Stephen G. Fullwood, what we're trying to do. We are trying to actually build um, somewhat of a fledgling community archive. Uh, so very different from working within an institution that has a mission and a foundation, um, and board members and stakeholders,
0: and funding um, something with that, <laughs> and funding.
1: Yes, and so <laughs> one of the great things about having an initiative that's outside of that is that you have more creativity um, and flexibility in thinking about how you collect. And sort of developing your own mission. So one of the things that I'm very passionate about, um, extremely passionate about, is developing collections uh, that speak to sort of, I don't want to say ordinary people, but everyday people's lives and stories. A lot of collections that represent the who's who, because for a lot of reasons, it's very important. You know, like when I worked at the Schaumburg, having my Angelou's papers, James Baldwin's papers was... Great. I mean, it was great on so many levels. It gave the Schaumburg a lot of acclaim, notoriety, and as well as funding. And now at the University of Rochester, having Frederick Douglas Douglass' papers, Susan B. Anthony's papers, that's another thing to sort of bring in um, the enthusiasm and the support that you would need to keep. In archive running. And that's extremely important because archives are typically, just as most people don't know we exist, we're also very underfunded. Um, and that's a large part of just being sort of this behind-the-scenes practice that goes on. And so in order to get that support, you also need those big collections, those big names to bring in that sort of notoriety.
0: Because I imagine um, it's not the PhD students who are doing research in these archives who are the ones who have usually the funding to then bankroll the upkeep, right?
1: No, I mean, not until they've written tons of books and (laughs) research.
0: Um, Right. Yeah. No. Um, You're making a long-term investment
1: strategy here. Yes. Yes.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Um,
1: And so, I mean, and so it's great in, in a sense to collect from these type of individuals or organizations, but a lot of what makes up our society is what so many individuals who are, you know, just sort of operate every day in their lives, go under the wire um, as far as representation. And so those are the stories that I'm more interested in and um, in collecting. And those are the people that I'm more interested in hearing from. And so I think, one of the great things of having this new initiative, the Nomadic Archivist Project, is that Stephen and I are really able to tap into the communities that we are interested in and that we feel the most pulled to and that we think that society has a lot to be gained from learning from them and from seeing their live stories on play, if that makes sense.
0: Absolutely. And I think as I I want to make sure I understand what the nomadic Archivist Project is? Because I believe there were like a few different pieces that kind of fall under that umbrella. Am I correct?
1: Yes. Um, So at the moment, we have four different initiatives going on. Um, And so the Nomadic Archivist Project is really, um, it's an initiative to document and preserve the African diasporic experience. And so one of the things that we're most interested in is capturing social justice and human rights initiatives around the world and one of the ways one of the vehicles we feel that people um, sort of report on these activities are through podcasting and so one of our initiatives is to start to culminate identify and put together our reservoir of podcasts from around the world that really hone in on different social justice themes so that's one of the and this um, and actually, we're really excited about this because we just got a grant from the Society of American Archivists to sort of push this part of the project forward. So we are like awful speed ahead on this project. we're very excited about it.
0: Congratulations.
1: Yeah, thank you. Uh, the two other ones that we have that uh, is sort of getting up and starting is archiving the Black Family. Uh, Another initiative, uh, which is called Documenting Rochester. And both have a lot of overlap, but one is specific to Rochester, New York, which is where I'm currently living. And the other one is a little bit more nationwide in its scope. And it's really, both of them are video and oral history documenting projects, really looking into a particular area. Um, whether it's here in Rochester or whether it's in New Orleans or whether it's in Harlem, New York, and sort of documenting certain experiences from when family members, when the beginning of a family member moving from the south to the north and just sort of tracing what that family's um, experience has been since they hit that northern city, you know, up until today. And so one of the things we're really trying to do is help bridge uh, the gap for when, it, in terms of archiving one's family. There's more impediments when it comes to archiving black families than it is to archiving white families, and there's a lot of reasons for
0: that. What do you see as impediments? Like, break that down. So I want to make sure that we understand.
1: Sure. For a lot of black families, the trajectory was starting in the United States um, through enslavement. And um, as most people know, during that period, there were no real identification assigned to people during that time period. Um, You were born. You may be called a girl or a boy. There may be a birth date. Most times not. Um, And when you died, you were just buried. In a small graveyard beside the family that owned you. Um, and there would probably be no marker and no death certificate, no real information that says that you lived and died and are buried in this place. And then what has happened since then is a lot of those graves have been uh, covered over. And so, not even, even if there was a marker at some point, or if you you know you may have known of a specific grave site, they pretty much have disappeared at this point. Then after enslavement, um, you know, through the late 1900s, a lot of families in early 20th century, um, a lot of families moved around a lot. And when you have to move, when you're constantly um, relocating, you don't take as many documents and family artifacts with you. And so one of the things that we find when doing archival research or genealogical research in black families is that there's not a lot of that documentation or representation in anything physical that can help to uncover the story of that family. Even if it's something, you know, a family member is taken from one place to the next that represents the place that they came from. So at least you could follow that trail. A lot of times those things are lost in transition.
0: So who is the population, obviously people of color, since mm-hmm. roughly, what, the seventeen, eighteen hundreds. 1800s. Is there a specific subset of the population that you're trying to record? A subset? What do you mean by a subset? So I guess, like, as I hear what you're trying to take on, I think, holy shit, that is huge, right? Like, that is an enormous population. Yeah. There's very little records birth certificates death certificates i mean things that would you'd normally start to try to track down even just from a genealogical basis right never mind like okay on this map from i don't know 1812 this used to be a slave graveyard
1: right? right like
0: there's all these like missing pieces to me that sounds huge and stressful it sounds like to you that's super creative But is there a way that you break that down or is it just not overwhelming to you? Is this just my own stuff bubbling into this question?
1: (laughs) I mean, I think it's overwhelming to me and to a lot of people who are trying to figure out their past um, and trying to trace their family story. Um, one of the things that, so my mother's a genealogist, she's been doing the work for over 40 years. Um, so I've been very much involved in this line of work.
0: So this is in your genes, quite literally. It's in my my genes. Yes. (laughs) Because that was going to be another question at some point. Like, how did you even get into this work?
1: Yes. Yes. She's probably responsible for (laughs) a lot of it. (laughs) You know, I mean, growing up, she did drag me, you know, to a lot of grave sites. I've been to so many grave sites. I mean, this is like her favorite (laughs) thing to do. Um, And, you know, just going to different courthouses, looking for records. Um, Yeah, so I spent a lot of time doing this sort of work with my mother. Although as a child, I was not very into it. You know, it's just like I had to go. And I didn't, I couldn't really connect the relevance or the weight of the work that she was doing. It just seemed very abstract to me, and it seemed like a lot of names and dates that didn't really mean anything. There was no bigger picture until, you know, now in the age that I am and seeing the story that she's trying to tell. It makes a lot of sense to me now, but at that point, at that age, it made no sense to me whatsoever.
0: Got it. Yes. So let's, let's go back then to how do you break this down like is there because to your point like even just researching one family can feel huge overwhelming and like I mean I know my husband Craig who you met actually when we got engaged his pop-pop his grandpa gave me a binder where let's see when we got engaged, Craig asked, like, what was my dad's middle name? And, like, what year was my mom born? And was, like, trying to, like, subtly ask these weird questions, like, over the course of a month. So I wouldn't suspect it. But it was because Pop-Pop was going to put together a whole binder and research my family tree as oh. an, enga- <laughs> as an yeah. engagement present. And I think also because Pop-Pop just needed some new trees yeah, <laughs> to, probably to, to probably. climb. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess, like, that seems massive and mind-blowing to me as a person looking at what you do so are you trying to trace like a handful of certain families or a certain community or is it really just go wide and see what comes up and let that inform how you move
1: yeah I'm less focused on the genealogy part of it and more focused on the archiving so for me what I'd like to do um especially within this project, is to work with different individuals and different members, community members, to sort of build up a family archive and to start thinking about how, you know, doing a little bit of research, how to go about using the different repositories in, that are around them locally or where they think their family has come from, and then start to what to do with those documents once they have it. So really start to build up and preserve their family archives. So for them to either keep and continue to pass it on through the generations or for them to then, I mean, one of the things that I think a lot of repositories are doing now is trying to collect, collect local history to find out, you know, what was really going on. I mean, we know we have government papers and we have hospital records and for some, you know, institutions that you have social service records, but that only tells you a piece, the bureaucratic part of the puzzle. You know, it doesn't actually tell you what individuals were thinking and feeling, what drove them every day, right? What, What were their passions? What were their struggles? What did it really look like? What is the reality? Because so much is just constructed and so much research and so much, Um, that's being published out there now and is built on very one-sided views of what was going on in a particular city or town or nation and so building up these sort of local community collections will sort of give the other side of the story right and give a more intimate look at what was going on and so for me um, it's either working with families to build it up build up the collection so they can keep them, or if they want to add their story to the national dialogue or the local dialogue of what was going on at a particular time in a particular city, then, you know, that's an option too. You know, a lot of it. And then doing this recording session where we will be recording people's stories so that they can have those stories and pass it on to the next generation. So more on the archival, less on the genealogical. Got it. So what I'm but she can use it to do genealogical research, obviously.
0: Got it. Because what I'm hearing you describe is there's and this only comes to top of mind because I read an article about it the other day. There's a difference between knowing Anne Frank was born on this day and Anne Frank died on this day, and the discrete bits of information we have about her life versus the article that I read recently was that they had discovered she had blacked out some pages, like kind of covered them over because they actually mm-hmm. contain dirty jokes. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, a, I forget what age she was when she was writing this. But she was writing about like, what is sex and discovering that, you know, when she was basically a tween or an, or an early teen, right? Um, that adds a very different context and color than just these discrete dates that you can support like this person was born, they were white, here's a picture. Yeah, it humanizes her, and
1: it humanizes her story.
0: Absolutely. So what you're doing is fascinating, and it sounds like you're actually pulling in people, like this isn't going to be you and your partner on this project going out and doing this all yourself. Like you'll be recording the interviews and kind of helping to set a structure, but it sounds like they're going to be pulling in the pieces and help with the creation of that. Is that correct? Oh,
1: yeah, absolutely. Partnership is huge. Absolutely.
0: And it's funner that way. It's
1: more creative that way. And, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, if you're working with real people and you're working with their stories, um, their history, it just having that real collaboration is actually key.
0: How are you going out and finding partnership? I guess, like, if a woman of color is listening to you right now and thinking, I want to be part of this or I want my family to be a part of this. Like how does that selection process work?
1: So right now it's been a lot of um, word of mouth and connecting. So people that I know who know me or know Steven and know the work we're doing um, have just been connecting us with individuals and institutions because we've been working with both. So right now it's just sort of been the network Um, At some point, though, when once we start to scale, once we start to grow and once our website goes live, which
0: (laughs) (laughs) I know how these things go, don't worry, I'm not judging. (laughs) uh, (laughs) Yeah, once
1: that, you know, once that is like in full swing, you know, then we'll have a way for people to connect with us there as well. Um, And so since this is still, you know, the the Nomadic Archivist Project is still in its infancy it's still in a very fledgling stage right now it's just been um word of mouth which is fine because um this is sort of this other project that we have going on um and I think that the way that it's at right now the way that it's coming together is sort of perfect for our lives at the moment
0: I love that you're sharing this project and that it's not wearing its nice neat bow right I feel like Something that I see a lot and hear a lot out there is nobody talks about what it's like to be in the middle of a project. And I've been, oh, right, yeah, you know, I've been trying to walk my own talk with the 33K, which some days I feel like is one of the most fun things I do outside of the podcast. You know, where I'm like, I'm getting to collect lists from women and see like what's going on in their world via this little strange piece of paper um, yeah. that, that seems to have a lot of energy and emotions attached to it. Yeah. But I think um, I totally can relate to what you're talking about. Because for I think, I don't know, three months now, at least, I've been like, I've got to find time to move the 33k off of the vital core page and have it be (laughs) its own baby and its own site and have its own place to go and have neat ways to upload stuff. But it's life happens. So i deeply appreciate your your honesty and just kind of like hey it's not all done yet <laughs> yeah
1: yeah I it's mean, refreshing
0: to hear <laughs> actually right.
1: okay yeah i mean it's it's well you know it's the reality and um it's it's so exciting though and i'm uh, you know i just met up with steven because we don't live in the same place but i met up with him this weekend and um i mean we're just so passionate about it and just excited to see where it can go. And we don't really have, I mean, we don't have a timeline necessarily, um, what we do for the grant project now that we just got. But everything else is sort of just as it comes um, and as it sort of shows itself to us, I think we're just fine with that. We're just, I don't know, it's, it's just so nice to not have it be something that, Something that we want to come to every day and that we are thinking about and just excited about and not, you know, at that point where it's sort of a burden where we've got this long to do list and it has to be done by a certain specific time. I mean, I'm sure that will come as all things do at some point, but it's just nice and refreshing that it's just at this sort of casual stage at the moment.
0: It sounds like the perfect pace for summer, at least, right? It is, yeah. Like, you don't don't (laughs) want to be, like, at your laptop when it's the only time it's nice here. Yes,
1: (laughs) this is true. This is true.
0: So how do you balance both, right? Because you have this labor of love. And I guess the type A woman in me, like, I know, like, with the 33K, which is totally undone, and I'm sort of winging it most weeks, most days with what piece I'm going to, break off next. And sometimes that's derived by external things that roll into my world, (laughs) kind of like you're describing. How do you, I guess, two ways. How do you manage the expectations around it? Because I know for me, that is something I struggle with, because I see the end, I see what I want it to be, I see how I want it to impact people. And then I guess, how do you also manage working on that versus... You have a day job. You have a life outside of work.
1: Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I don't know if I'm the best at answering that. I have a, <laughs> I feel like, you know, I'm still trying to figure out how to uh, manage my time and prioritize. Um, obviously, my full-time job will always uh, take precedence because, um, it pays, <laughs> it pays and, you know, I'm in a con- contract with them and, you know, and I love doing it. Um, and you know, it is, it's a nine to five. Um, so I have to show up and be present at that point. And I wouldn't want it. I wouldn't want any of my, the things that I'm doing to infringe on each other in any way. So once I'm at work, I'm fully at work. Once I'm doing my other projects or I'm at home, I want to be focused on that. And so when I'm at work, I, I am definitely totally invested at work because uh, I have not a free m- moment to spare. <laughs> but I will say that when I'm at home or trying to work on individual projects, other things sort of creep into those spaces. And so I'm still trying to figure out a way to sort of find that balance. And one of the things that has helped is to know that specific times during the day, I'm just going to do X. Oh, I'm just going to work on this project. And instead of trying to, because, you know, for a while I would just try, I would say, okay, so I have from 7 to 10 free on like Tuesdays and Thursdays. So I'm just going to do all these small projects that I have and try to fit it in. Um, And it never really worked because I could never multitask like that and... I think you're more productive anyways when you're just sort of focusing on that one thing. Yeah. So I think one of the ways is just to say, okay, um, and be, you know, completely real with yourself and just say, this is the time only for the Nomadic Archivist Project. And that's it. I'm not going to focus on anything else. I'm not going to Google something else when it comes to my mind. Because, you know, our thoughts are... Oh my! (laughs) fleeting. you are not alone. Like oh, I forgot I had to buy that plane ticket, and then (laughs) I'm off to Delta. Um, And so, I think um, just constantly keeping yourself in check. And I really, I mean, when it does come together that way, and when you are sort of keeping on task, uh, at least for me, it feels better at the end. It's like oh, I just had a healthy meal. It's like that great feeling, or I just had a great night of sleep. It's just so nice to sort of like move forward and you can see how things are coming together, even if it's at a slow pace, but just that, you know, incrementally working or chipping away at something, it feels good at the end.
0: Well, it sounds like just putting the the block around like what you're going to work on, whether it's an hour or whether it's from 7 to 10 on Tuesdays and Thursdays, what I'm hearing is... Yes, would you love to be doing that more frequently or whatnot, but recognizing I'm probably going to get more done if I did three focused hours every two weeks versus when I try to stuff in little tasks around, I got to book a flight, I got to get home from work, I got to eat, I got to take a shower, like those kinds of things.
1: Right, yeah, when
0: it's just not planned at all, you just sort
1: of like, okay, I've got a moment, let me just sit down and see what happens
0: so as you structure your week, I'm picturing you being a pretty organized person overall. Is is that a fair statement? Um, yeah,
1: actually I think I'm a little organized to a default. Um organizing beca- organizing becomes like an obsession for me. <laughs> um.
0: <laughs> I imagine it's an occupational hazard, right? It it really is. It really is. Do they so, all like you know. check you for like O C D tendencies like before you can I commit to the profession?
1: I, that's what happens in grad school, yes. You have to...
0: <laughs> if you, yes, if, if if you find out...
1: If they find out that you are definitely OCD and um, a little awkward and like solitary time on your own. You're like hired. Um, <laughs> just like the traits. It's the, <laughs> I mean, definitely, you know there's definitely a lot of traits when it comes to people in the library science field. And, um, those three are definitely high on the list. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so definitely, you know, I'm, I, I try to be as organized as possible. Um, even from like when I start my day, I sort of have to like organize my desk and organize my bag and organize my emails and sort of organize my to-do lists and I have to, Get all that in place before I can actually start
0: my work. Um, what are some takeaways from that morning routine that you think the frazzled type A crowd listening to this podcast might benefit from?
1: Well, for me, it streamlines what I should be working on. Um, once I take a moment, instead of just sitting down and just, you know, working on the first email that's, um, you know, that pops up in my email inbox or the first thing that's been left on my desk... It sort of gives me a chance to step back and sort of take stock of what is in front of me for the day and just try to think about what's most important or if I'm feeling like I can't possibly handle the most important, then I can think, okay, well, what just needs to get done and I only need half a brain to do it. Um, So I think it just (laughs) kind of gets me in the right frame of mind for whatever is to come for that day.
0: Because it sounds like you said your days, you're, you're pretty much running. Your hair is on fire.
1: You know, and I think that's just the nature of work these days, too. There's just a lot of last-minute things that are always thrown on our plates and always things that need to be done ASAP or yesterday, which I don't know how this <laughs> happens. <laughs> but I don't once you send either. it out there to the world, you don't hear back for like, you know, three weeks or something, and you're like, okay. I don't know about this ASAP business, but um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: like, like, I do feel I moved um, at a hundred miles an hour to get this back to you by the end of the, the day and you didn't respond for six weeks. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing
1: how that sort of unfolds. Um, but yeah, so things are just, you know, busy, busy, busy. And so having, and also just being, you know, even just to the fact of having like a bag that's organized makes my running from one place to the next so much easier because then I know I have and I everything that's in my bag I need
0: this sounds like a funny question and maybe there's not a parallel or a, a lesson in this but the, having an organized bag is not something that typically comes up so oh, okay <laughs> I definitely hear people talk about like different perspectives on how they kind of manage time and things like that. So I definitely hear your point about prioritization in the morning and kind of like, okay, let me get my head on before my hair catches fire today. Um, But the bag, anything that we can learn there, like any advice you have, like that you've kind of vetted all the, you've gotten rid of the the junky stuff in the bag and just have what you need or is it really specific to what you do for me um
1: and I think this is something actually well I think this is a trait that most women have is that we sort of prepare for everything and so we <laughs> this have this crowd does
0: this crowd <laughs> totally does and we you have are talking mom, to that woman.
1: then you have even more than everything that you could possibly have um <laughs> in your bag <laughs> And I think like (laughs) having those survival kits are necessary, but that should not be your primary bag. And so for me, um, I would say the one thing that you're going to take with you like throughout the day should be like just, and this is something, you know, and I work with a lot of clutter and a lot of stuff, but minimizing the clutter and like cleaning out your space, whether it's an inbox or your bag or, um, you know, your computer, um, desktop, all of that adds to like sort of the mental noise. And so for me, the bag represents just like my email inbox. Um, it just represents a lot of, a lot of noise and a lot of distraction. And I just take it all out. And if, if by chance I really needed that stick of gum that I left somewhere else, i just do without and keep it moving and, not, and try not to think about it um, or borrow a piece of gum from my neighbor. And so I think for me, just having that clean space just allows me to sort of focus in on my own thoughts and not all those distractions around me.
0: This sounds amazing. I feel like we're speaking this, the same language. Oh, good, good, good. For, for you, it sounds like the bag and, like, the desk and, like, these spaces. And even email is really important. I know for me, like, something I've been trying to whittle down. And I haven't, I haven't gotten it right yet or figured it out totally. But, like, I don't know if you've seen the work of Courtney Carver. She's doing no. – um, she does a lot around minimizing – I think her, her, I think she came to it when she was, when she found out she was diagnosed with MS, Mm, right? mm -hmm. So she was just like, what's important in my life? And like, she has her whole journey around it. But one of the things in her work that I've been really fascinated with is having just a capsule wardrobe. Like, how do I not think about clothes as much as I do? And, you know, I... I'm sure there are women who love shopping that just heard that and are gasping audibly somewhere. That's just not my thing. That's something that if I could just wear a uniform every day and not have to deal with ever thinking about what to wear ever again, I would be so satisfied. And I'm trying to figure out how to get there without being just a total weirdo who's wearing a uniform every day.
1: Um, Oh, but people will love it. I mean, the, the simpler you are, people tend to will. You know, a friend of mine, you know, one time said, and he's always like in the same T-shirt in, uh, in slacks, and slacks. And somebody was just like, I really love your style. And he's like, wow. And he probably doesn't even know that this is the same T-shirt and slacks I wear day in and day out. Um But it's sort of like that, you know, that Steve Jobs style, you know, like you have it. It's a look. And most of us have a look at some point, even if we're putting on different clothes every day. But it is freeing, isn't it, to just wake up in the morning and not think about that, not think about what to wear. Um, For me, it's not thinking about dinner.
0: Oh, yeah. There's another common thing that comes up in my world, definitely, with clients especially. Like, how do I just make this process easier? Right,
1: right, and I think it just there's so much going on. Um, at least in my world, there's a lot going on day to day. So much to think about. So many pulls and pushes to one direction. That any place that I can sort of minimize what it is I have to think about, it just leaves my brain open for all the things that actually matter to me.
0: What are some of the most unexpected? places that you've cut out clutter that have really impacted things for you like it sounds like your bag was one are there other places that you're like this was the next most satisfying place
1: um I think you know I think I'm kind of extreme I feel like I've at this point have cut out everything that I can possibly cut out at the moment um I mean I've gotten to the point where so I've cut out a lot of like clothing books and just stuff that's in my house. Um, but now I'm doing it, you know, like now I'm becoming obsessive about my budget and where can I stop spending so much money? Like, why am I spending so much money on my coffee every morning? I drink it at home and then during the day. So then I'm now starting to think about like this kind of clutter. Like, why, why am I not really being conscientious of every action in my life? So I've kind of gone to the extreme. I might not be, you know, the best um, example at this point. uh, But it feels so good that it's just like, okay, so where else can I cut out? Why do I need two of these? Why do I need two forks? (laughs) Just wash this fork and give it to the person next to me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love your honesty around this. And to me, like a lot of what you're talking about doesn't sound super extreme but maybe that's because i think about being intentional with a lot of stuff that i do. yes yeah because there's plenty of places that i can waste my time on youtube like last I, I don't know a couple of weeks ago when i got woken up by this like ridiculous sound at like four in the morning and i was like what the hell is that i couldn't get back to sleep so i spent you know a good hour on youtube figuring out which animal was freaking out in the yard under my mm. window So there are plenty of places where I goof off and waste time and just kind of let my brain reset. But I think being really intentional about how we spend our money, how we spend our time, those are two of the most important resources we have.
1: Right. Right. Absolutely.
0: I know, like, there's the whole new age side of the world that might be listening and think, well, money and time are, are boundless. But I don't know. I still have... At least one foot on terra firma most days, and think these are non renewable resources, at least in this one lifetime.
1: Absolutely, especially our time. That's definitely not renewable.
0: Yeah. So I love hearing how you're cutting out clutter. I think it's something I'm seeing, you know, in the the health and lifestyle strategy world. I'm feeling like that minimalism is becoming, I don't know, on trend. And I kind of hope it sticks around. Like, I hope it doesn't, like, go so extreme that people are freaked out by it and then push back on it.
1: I feel like the pendulum is sort of swinging back a little. I think that there was this sort of extreme minimalism, like, count every, you know, blouse you have, and you can only have so many shoes. Um, And now it's just, you know, if this, you don't have to cut back on everything. Um, If clothing isn't important to you, cut it back. But if, owning hundreds of books is keep owning them because it's at the end of the day, it's about your happiness and not necessarily what you actually have, you know? So like if being surrounded by tons of books makes you happy every day, it doesn't bring you, um, a sense of burden and a sense of overwhelming, um, dissatisfaction, then you should keep on doing it. But if you're like us and you don't want to think about what you wear every day, then then really streamline your outfit and keep it moving. So tr- I think that that pendulum is sort of swinging back into something that is a little more palatable for everybody to sort of swallow.
0: I hope you're right, and I hope there's a day where I can wear sweatpants to speak publicly. <laughs> <laughs> it's possible. It's possible. <laughs> we, maybe we'll get there in this lifetime.
1: Maybe, maybe.
0: So, Miranda, I want to ask you a little bit of a different question. How do you define success for yourself?
1: I think one of the ways that I would define success, um, and this is something, a feeling that sort of came to me while I was working at the Schomburg Center, because the Schomburg had such an amazing mission. It just, I mean, it was a very simple mission in a sense to collect and preserve the African diasporic experience, um, in a sense, was started by Arthur Schomburg in the early nineteen or the early um, yeah early nineteen hundreds. That idea of being a part of such a strong mission, especially in the turbulent times that, especially African Americans have faced over the last few hundred years, and the different struggles that we currently face. Having that history, that representation that um, we're not crazy and that um, having that documentation is so powerful and so profound that just being a part of that mission really made me feel like, okay, every day that I get up to do this work, it's meaningful, it's important to me. And so I think success is just that feeling, is just to be able to wake up every day with a sense of real purpose and a deep belief that how I'm spending my moments matter.
0: The turbulent times that you're talking about, it's capital T and probably has the same gravity as like platinum, right? Yes. (sighs) And that's the understatement of the century still. Miranda, how did you get into this work?
1: So this actually, uh, becoming an archivist was definitely not something that I envisioned for my life. And that I think is just from the um, <laughs> realistic standpoint that I really had no idea that the profession existed. And so I was, you know, as I was moving through my life, um, thinking about what I would do, and I was kind of very nomadic in, um, I think, everything that I did. I was constantly moving from one city to the next. Um, I transitioned from a lot of universities um, as I saw fit. And I started just collecting degrees at one point. Um,
0: you degrees. have a few of them. You're, I have a
1: few You're degrees. a pretty smart lady. <laughs> and um, But they all started to connect at some point. Um, a lot of the work, even when I was studying things that didn't connect, um, I always had a central theme of really thinking about um, anything to do with the African diaspora. And so at some point I was like, okay, so maybe I should go into the World Bank or the UN, you know, something international that sort of focused in on either the Caribbean or countries in Africa or possibly going to the State Department. When I was getting my master's from Howard University, I was also I was studying African Studies and International Affairs. And one of the internships I took um, during that time period was I worked at the embassy in Ghana in West Africa. Working at the embassy, um, working for the State Department was phenomenal. I learned a lot. I was working there when Condoleezza Rice was Secretary of State. Um, obviously, George Bush was the president, and so. When you're a diplomat, you are really putting forward the policies of the government at that time. It became very clear to me as I think about like how I want to live my life and the truths that I want to put forward into the world. That you know, working within a government structure that didn't always match up with my belief systems was just not the right field for me to go into and (laughs) so so naturally and you're working a lot with people and that's not necessarily my personality I'm a little (laughs) bit more of an object kind of a girl you know if it it doesn't speak (laughs) back to me I really really like it you know
0: (laughs) I'm extra (laughs) impressed you said yes to this podcast then
1: Yes, yes. I mean, you know, it's, um, yes, I'm definitely, definitely an introvert and enjoy a lot of solitary time. And so that was one of the internships I took. And the other one was at the Library of Congress in the African Middle Eastern reading room. Um, And then that's when I sort of found my sweet spot. That's when I learned all the behind the scenes things. Um, And that's when i really started to hone in on this idea of what it meant to be a steward of cultural heritage and the importance of that work i mean there's one book out there that's called badass librarians from timbuktu and although i cannot (laughs) say (laughs) that i am as badass as these folks who rescued all of these manuscripts um during a time of conflict um, I do see myself in that role. Um, and so it just sort of fit it fit with my personality 100%. And so then I just rolled with it.
0: So it's a huge job that you have. How do you keep going, right? Because there are days where it falls apart. Or there I'm sure there are days where you feel like, I moved three steps backwards. How do you continue? Continue to feel successful or feel connected to that purpose when you're having a day like that?
1: I think it's really hard. I think that goes without saying. And I think stepping away is a good remedy. Um, taking yourself completely out of the situation and not thinking about it. And so for me, what I do to sort of relieve stress, to sort of clear my mind, to sort of just regroup, and get on that level ground so that I'm not coming from a very emotional place in my thoughts and um, reactions is just to be very physical, whether that's, you know, going on a bike ride, a long bike ride, or going skiing or doing anything physical. Um, So a lot of times after work, even when I should be doing something else, I'll probably be out um, on the canal biking for a couple of hours. And it just... Totally rejuvenates me and gives me uh, a sense of balance so that as I'm like thinking about the day, the next day, and how I'm going to like go back in and approach whatever that problem is, it just, I mean, it doesn't always work depending on the magnitude of the problem um, the next day, but that constant sort of like giving my body the fuel that it needs and that release just sort of, I think, mentally unblocks me and helps me to sort of be a little bit healthier in my thoughts
0: that, that my friend, answer your question <laughs> yeah and that my friend sounds like the thing you should be doing if you should be doing anything right like should is such a loaded word for me when yeah. i heard it but it sounds like that's amazing like yeah. you're able to kind of give yourself that gift and know like this is the thing that is going to help bring me back in balance as fast as possible
1: Right. And it's, you know, a lot of fun. So (laughs) it's a pretty easy way to, you know, kind of escape a reality by going skiing.
0: That's true. Yeah. Because I mean, biking on the canal sounds amazing, but winter can always be a little bit like, how do you get back outside? It sounds like you have a great way to do it.
1: Oh, yes. It doesn't matter (laughs) on the season. It doesn't matter on the season. (laughs) I have an activity for every season.
0: Nice. I love being outside. Nice. Did you always know getting physical, like that kinetic energy was what would bring your overall energy back into balance? Or is that something you had to discover?
1: I think I discovered it in my early 20s because I went to an art school growing up. And so in high school, uh, we didn't have any sports. So I never really got out and did anything Um and so, but when I went to college, you know, you had take all these electives and one of them was a running course. Nice. And once I learned how to run, like at first I thought, oh, I can't run. I mean, I can run for a minute, but I can't like actually run for any length of time um, or any, <laughs> anything over a mile seemed really daunting, but then, you know, just learning how to do it and it was pretty simple at the end. Um, sort of just got, and then just feeling that power and that release of just being able to build on a run and go faster and faster as you pick up the momentum. So I think it was at that point, And then after that, I've just been active ever since.
0: You got the bug.
1: I got it. And yeah, <laughs> now it's just wonderful.
0: Nice, nice. So it sounds like you have days where you're like, Oh, I got to get out of here. And I guess here's a here's a question because we all run into it from time to time. When if ever have you succumbed to bullshit and or burnout? And I guess just so we can understand, what was that like for you? Or maybe a little bit about what happened and how did you come back?
1: So definitely um I think we've all experienced a lot of burnout in our, you know, day to day lives and our career. And I think that one of the things for me is to sort of try to, and not to be completely emotionless, but try to put my emotions to the side so that I can be as selective as possible um, on what I'm going to spend my time fighting uh, and what I'm going to let go. Because at the end of the day, letting things go too also feels really good and feels really healthy. Um, and I, you know, if something happens and I feel like, uh, you know, that it was either disrespectful or unethical. Um, at the end of the day, it's that other person's, uh, burden. And if I can let it go, it feels so much better. And so when I start to succumb to it, that's when I feel like, oh, I'm really letting my emotions control how I'm feeling. Um, and letting my emotions dictate what my actions are going to be or what they're not going to be. And although I think that there's a place for our emotions and um, that they're super important to think about, when there is bullshit going on around us, um, when we just want to scream, It's really good to sort of put things into perspective. Um, I know that I am still working through, you know, like when something happens to me that I feel is unjust or not right, to confront that, to confront those things head on. It's very scary for me. I don't like to be in a place that feels uncomfortable often. I sort of like to be in a nice cushy bubble.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> you like to be in your archive. So I do. I like,
1: be, I like to be in the stacks. I <laughs> like to be in the stacks. Um, and so, you know, those are nice safe spaces for me. So being uncomfortable is definitely difficult. Um, and so, um, and I think that, to your question of just how how did i come back from it um i think that you know at some point you we always hit that wall um that emotional wall from something that's happened and i think just trying to keep the end game in perspective and what is really important for me to accomplish is most critical and so if i feel like the situation calls for it i'll fight it if not i'll let it go because it's always 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 not for the most part i find just not worth the trouble of constantly fighting battles
0: well i mean that's the one-way ticket to burnout city right like when we're constantly depleting ourselves because we're trying to fight every single battle it's it's so easy to just completely burn yourself out right so miranda i want to ask you a question and i know we're kind of talking about some bullshit you've encountered in a really general way because yes. there's no sense naming names in particular situations in history. Um, and I, I get that you're trying to be respectful and sensitive to other people involved. I guess one of the things that I wanna I wanna focus on though is what has helped you or or served to make you less reactionary in those moments and or confident enough to to really hold your ground and take it head on, as you say?
1: I feel like I have a pretty robust life. And so thinking in terms of, okay, this is one aspect of my life and this is one thing that's just right now full of bullshit. Um, But there's only one aspect of who I am. It's not my whole identity. Uh, I have all these other pieces that are a part of who I am. Um... And a part of my everyday experience. And so I think just keeping things in perspective, that helps a lot. Um, And to think, you know, I don't want to bring different stresses into other environments, especially into my home environment. Um, Trying to keep that in focus as much as possible. And I think having people that I really love and who really love me always helps right? Um, so having those powerful relationships just makes everything um, that much easier. And so to your first point, I would say that that's what sort of gives me um, that sort of calming factor and to sort of have that outlook. And then to your second point, um, the courage to confront things. Um, I think I just get mad I don't even know if it's courage. <laughs> I think it's just getting mad and then or seeing something, you know, like quote or reading a specific line in a book and then I you know, then I'm just like, oh man, yes, I'm definitely going to confront this situation because I'm just I'm not, you know, I'm definitely not going to just submit to it and have somebody roll over me. And so yeah, I think it's just, at some point, it just bubbles up, and yeah, I'm just angry enough to make a change.
0: And then, how do you know when to let stuff go? You know, I, I think it's just a feeling
1: that I get, you know, I mean, I think it's it just depends on the situation, but at some point, I'm just ready to let it go, and I think I'm pretty good at letting things go, because I, I just kind of move on very easily, um, but... I don't know. I don't mean I don't know the science behind how it happens. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no worries. I'm just okay. picturing you like skiing down a slope and like worries are like flying off behind you or like as you bike, like there's yes. a trail of like enough from this fool at work, enough from this person in this other realm of my life, that, enough yeah, of the news. <laughs>
1: like, and I think also too part of my personality is I'm, uh, you know, a bit nomadic in how I think too. And so I, you know, I'm always thinking like, is my time being spent the way that I want it to be spent in this particular place, whether it's the job I'm in or the location I'm in. And then, I mean, for, I mean, my whole life has been moving from one place to the next. So I think that also helps me let things go because I just sort of pick up and transition to a new place. Um, and that sort of fresh start always helps.
0: Oh, got it. Like, as someone that's moved twice in the last, I don't know, 18 months, two years, whatever. So what I'm hearing is, like, it's kind of like when I went through all my stuff packing it. And it's like, why am I moving this again? Like, yeah. out yeah. it goes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, Absolutely. May, may this be a wonderful book for someone else to read. May. <laughs> May this be a wonderful CD for someone else. And I know we've kind of touched on a lot of different things, kind of what your work is, what you're actually working on, then kind of the idea of being a modern woman and some of the challenges that we bump up against as modern women. What do you most want Le Vital Salon listeners to know?
1: So I think the, I guess the one takeaway um, for me for everybody else, Um, and I think, Kara, this goes back to a point that you made in the beginning, and um, I think one of the reasons why you asked me on the show is just to sort of get to know an archivist, right, to get to know a little bit more about these sort of behind-the-scenes things that happen every day that most people are not uh, generally aware of. And so I think, for me, for your listeners, it would just be great... um, for anybody who is near any sort of, whether it's a historical society or a museum, um, to sort of go in, get to know their collections, a lot of repositories have exhibitions up. Um, one of the things that I loved is that once I started um, talking about what I did, um, everybody, you know, like especially... Um, if you have a specific collecting area, so people collect in human sexuality or they might collect photographic history or they might uh, collect operas. Um, and so as soon as people know what specialty um, that you're interested in, if they go to a specific play, they might bring the playbill or um, a broadside of the production Um or maybe an autograph copy of one of the uh, of a photograph of somebody who was performing, and all these little things sort of add to the collections and start helping to build the collections. And so um, that's one of the things I would love to see. You know, if anybody's just interested in learning a little bit more about archives or just getting to know their local repositories is just to sort of show up one day with a couple of broadsides or a playbill or something like that and um, just start building those relationships.
0: That is so great to know because I think, especially as we talked about minimizing and like getting rid of clutter, there's this notion like, well, I don't want to throw it away. And I think I'm so glad you mentioned this for the listeners because there might actually be someone who would lovingly give something a home that is no longer adding any joy or spark to your life.
1: Yeah. To go, all,
0: to go all Marie Kondo on the point. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, I mean,
1: if you're, if you're looking around your house and you're thinking, oh, what can I give away, um, whether it's a, you know, a cultural um, artifact or something that you have actually created – and you think it would be beneficial that to show up at an archive, maybe not show up with the article or with the item, talk to the archivist first. But, you know, I mean, at one, at one point I was working with this one writer and I won't say names, um, but he was just constantly, you know, sending in his journals um, and, you know, it was great. Fine. Um, but he was. Very big into writing about sexuality and all these other things. And <laughs> you have like his pubic hair in the journal, and it was just like, okay, thank you for sending this to me. Now I have to go catalog this very interesting item. But um, oh, Lord you know, Every there's everything. <laughs> there's everything in an archive. Anything you could possibly people archive cake. Anything you could think of um, can be archived. So. Oh, my God. Amazing. (laughs) I don't know how to archive cake, but I'm very interested in it. But there are people who archive food.
0: Oh, my God. I feel like there's another podcast guest, right? Like, how does one archive food?
1: Very
0: interesting. (laughs) Oh, Miranda, I'm, I'm so grateful for this chat and for you taking time to really help us understand what it is an archivist does and how this works and I think on that last note I like I have I'm sort of blushing like pubic hair always gets me (laughs) (laughs) well thank you
1: so much for asking me to come and talk um I hope that I've at least answered a few of your questions cleared up a little bit of the mystery
0: yes 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 and if women have more questions for you or want to know more about you or your work, what is the best way for them to do that?
1: I think the best way will be, and I'll give it to you, um, my the website for the Nomadic Archivist Project, which hopefully will be the Nomadic Archivist Project.
0: Awesome. Um, mm-hmm. And I'll make sure that that makes it to the show notes.
1: Okay, great. Thank you
0: cool so listeners go to the show notes if you want to know more you'll be able to touch on all of the work Miranda and I talked about and there'll be links to any resources and people and things like that that we mentioned too and Miranda thank you so much for being here
1: thank you I really I had a good time
0: yay that's what we aim for in the Vital (laughs) Core Salon Hey, it's Kara again. Before you boot scoot back into your day, did anything that Miranda and I talked about today remind you of another woman in your life? If it did, please share this podcast with that one woman. It's because of taking small actions like that that this podcast is beginning to grow and reach more and more women every month. And I can't do this without your help. So please, if something reminded you of someone you know and love, send them a link. It's as easy as that. And I wanted to remind everyone, too, that all of the resources and some of the things that we talked about, people, places, and things are usually going to find their way into the show notes. And you can find the show notes for this episode at LeVitalCore, C-O-R-P-S, Salon.com. So LeVitalCore Salon. And new shows will be uploaded every second and fourth Wednesdays of each month. If you don't want to remember that timing, you can simply sign up for the email online. I only send about one or two emails a month. I know you're busy, and I don't need to flood your email box, but I want you to stay in the loop of when new shows are coming out. I know all of you hear my voice with the podcast or see my face in the little logos and pictures and social media posts and things like that, but I could not make this show without the help of people around me. One of those people is my husband and producer, Craig Snyder, who does an amazing job editing the show and... Being a sounding board for a lot of kooky ideas that I have about this podcast. Another person who helps keep this show on the rails is Darlene Victoria, who's my virtual assistant. She is awesome, and I can't thank her enough for her hard work. And also, want to give a shout out to Rishi Deer of both bands, Elephant Stone and now Mean, for writing the theme song and the High Dials for performing it. I've got to get out of here. But don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout stop you.